Morning, everyone. Good to be back. Uh, did anybody lose power? Raise your hand if you lost power. All right, okay, yeah. We were fortunate enough to not do that, but I, uh, there's like this ramp outside our front door, and there's no cover on that ramp. So when I uh, tried to walk out my front door, I was like, I am not, I'm not leaving the house at all today uh, because I almost slipped and fell on my you-know-what. Uh, so uh, my wife didn't let me leave the house. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. I chose to stay home. Uh, so... <laughs> Well, how's everyone doing this morning? We're doing okay? Good. Uh, my name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm working with youth and families, and uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. If you are visiting us this morning, uh, welcome. Super glad that you guys are here, um, and we'd love to connect with you. If you meet me or, or uh, one of our other staff members or ushers or something in the, in the lobby, we'd love to chat and talk to you and meet you and, and say hi. So, um, you are in for a treat because we're in the book of Revelation. Woo! So we have, been, uh, we have been taking a look at the book of Revelation here at OCEC for the last couple of months and kind of teaching through it and, and kind of figuring out, okay, what is this book that is kind of mysterious and sometimes a little bit confusing and honestly, in my opinion, super amazing? Uh, what does this book have to say to us today? That's a good rhyme, right? Uh, what does this book have to say to us today? I mean, the book was written in the late first century. We're talking like 90-something-ish A.D. And now we're almost 2,000 years later, and this book is still captivating followers of Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. Uh, this book is still sort of drawing our imagination and our, and our attention to it time and time again, which tells me that it has something to say to us. So we kind of like have been taking a look at it, and we're looking at it through this lens, okay? We're looking at it through this lens, and the lens is this. The whole main point of the book of Revelation, despite all of its complexities, despite all the craziness that we see in it, is this. God wins. God wins, right? Yeah, woo! We can amen that. Okay, God wins. Satan loses, and our job is to persevere. That's the bottom line. So as we're walking through the complexities of this book, that is kind of our baseline. And that's what we're going to kind of be, uh, be coming back to time and time again. So what we're going to do this morning is kind of what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, except for last week. Um, we're going to read an entire chapter of Revelation this morning. Woo! Right? Who loves reading an entire chapter of the Bible at once? Um, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to read an entire chapter of Revelation. And I know that sounds like a lot, but then we're going to kind of go back through and take it chunk by chunk and talk about what it has to say. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 7. I've got my copy here. I'll be reading out of the NIV. You might have something slightly different than me, but that's okay. We're all on the same team here. <laughs> all right, so once you're there... We are going to read, starting in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 7. John says this, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. 
Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked. And before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. There's that sevenfold praise again. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And I answered, Sir... You know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Now take a deep breath. Let the words of this passage sink in for a second. There's a lot in here, right? It's kind of packed. This is sort of the MO for for Revelation. He kind of packs a lot into a little, a little bit of space. But this passage is kind of an interlude. Because if you remember back to two weeks ago, so... For some of us, including myself, that's kind of difficult. But if you remember back to two weeks ago, we opened six seals. Okay, so there was this scroll, and no one was able to open it, and it was sealed with seven seals, and oh my gosh, who's going to open the scroll that's going to bring the end of all things, and going to bring judgment on wickedness and evil and sin, and is going to bring God's God's total plan into completion, and nobody could, uh, could open the scroll, and John is like weeping because nobody could open the scroll. Who's going to actually be able to judge all the stuff that's going on and bring peace and wholeness to the world? 
And then it's revealed that, well, the lamb is worthy. The lamb, Jesus, is worthy to do this. And so then we start opening the, the seals on the scroll and stuff starts happening, right? We see like the four horsemen, which is this like iconic image, right? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we see all kinds of stuff happening, earthquakes and people are going crazy and it's, it's wild, right? And then all of a sudden we get this kind of like interlude. We get a break, from the craziness for a second, a break from the violence, a break from the destruction. And we are given, in the midst of all of that, a passage that is filled to the brim with incredible hope. And we're going to unpack that today. This passage also touches on something that is deep, deep within us as human beings, this question that we wrestle with as people which is what do we do, how do we respond to, how do I process a world that is filled with stuff that is not the way that it's supposed to be? How do I deal with this feeling deep down that the world is not the way that it ought to be? When I look around me, I don't necessarily see the world as it should be. I see it as it actually is, and how that is can be really frightening. What do we do with that? How do we address that? And this passage touches on that and gives us a little injection of hope. So let's look back at the beginning of the passage, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at the first four verses here. John says this, after, I, after this, so all the stuff from the breaking of the first six seals, after all that stuff, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. Okay, so what's going on here? John is actually referring back to an image that, uh, that happens in a couple of other places in the Old Testament, primarily the book of Ezekiel. You know, John, I guess, really loves the book of Ezekiel because he draws from it often, Okay. And there's this image of these, uh, these four winds that are coming from the four corners of the earth. The idea is this. That they, he wasn't thinking of the earth as like a rectangle, right? He's not saying, oh, well, the earth is definitely a flat plane that is, is rectangular and he, there's four corners of it. This is an expression we still use today, right? People are coming from all, from all four corners of whatever this is. It means from all over. They're from the furthest reaches out, okay? They're coming in. That's the idea here. And holding back the wind of destruction. Now, once again, if we kind of take a look through our Old Testament and we take a look at how wind is portrayed in the Old Testament, it is often a destructive and scary force. The one example that I can give you is when, uh, when at the beginning of the book of Job, if you guys are familiar with the book of Job, there's a great wind that comes and knocks down Job's house and just, like, destroys his family. It's terrible. Or images of God's judgment, particularly in the prophets, are depicted as a scorching east wind that comes from the east and, and it brings destruction and havoc and judgment so the wind is this thing that's portrayed as being destructive, and we're seeing angels, or John is seeing angels, that are holding the destruction back. They've been given permission to let it go, okay? 
but they're holding it back and protecting God's people momentarily. Okay? So then I saw another angel. Look at verse 2. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now, we talked a little bit about seals. And in this context, in sort of the ancient Roman world, what John would have been talking about is like a ring, for example. Uh, Think of like a class ring, almost, kind of a big, fat, chunky ring that has a flat part on it with a symbol or an insignia or a word or something like that that an official or a ruler would use to seal documents. So they drip some wax onto it, onto the seal, and then he would place his seal onto the document that would mark it as coming from himself. Like, this is my official word, okay? And that would denote kind of ownership and all this kind of stuff. So he has the seal of the living God in his hand, this thing that is going to mark something as belonging to God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the land and the sea. In other words, they could let go of the wind at any time. And the wind's going to come in and blow stuff up, okay? And he says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees. I've got to add the trees in there. You know, us Oregonians. Has, it, has anybody had like a tree fall near their home because of all the, ri- the ice recently? Yeah, it's, it's a little scary, right? So if the trees are all blowing down, this is a scary thing. So don't harm the trees, all right, guys? Until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, this is a really interesting image to me. It kind of stands out. Because normally, when you read about seals, it's something that you, you know, you seal something in wax or uh, something like that that's soft and malleable. But there's a different image that's happening here, and it is kind of a gruesome one. I just want to, like, warn you guys ahead of time. But here's the, here's the thing. In, in the ancient Roman world and in the Greek world before this, this was actually something that was a relatively common practice in the slave trade. So, in the ancient Roman world, enslaved people were kind of, like, were were commonplace. Slavery was commonplace. And what would happen occasionally if an enslaved person would commit a crime or would run away and they were caught, is there would be uh, uh, some kind of thing that would happen to them if, if they weren't killed, just like, If they weren't killed, there would sometimes be a marking, a brand, or even a tattoo that was placed on the person's forehead that marked out, A, what their crime was, and B, it would probably have some sense of, like, this is the person who owns this person. That's a pretty wild image, right? It's a little bit, like, ugh. It's a little bit uncomfortable. But John takes this brutal horrifying image, right? It's not, it's not pretty. But do you see what he does? He kind of turns it upside down and he subverts it. He turns it into something else, something new. And he says that the servants of God, and if you look in the original language, this word for servant can also be translated as enslaved person or slave, okay? They get a mark on their foreheads that denotes who is in charge of them, and it is God. And not only that, 
But in this moment, when God places his seal onto someone's forehead, it's not just a symbol of ownership, but it's a symbol of protection, a symbol of endurance, it's a symbol of security. So you see how John takes this image that would have brought to mind like being crushed, being under the thumb of someone, being completely under the control of another person, and turns it into something that marks it out as something that is new and brings life. This is something I think that's kind of incredible. And I think the gospel does this with a lot of different things in our world. Take something that is wicked and subverts it and turns it upside down into something totally new. So these people that are the servants of God that are going to be protected are given this symbol of God's protection on their foreheads for the world to see. And then John hears the number of those who received the seal of God on their foreheads, 144,000. Okay, this passage is kind of controversial. <laughs> let's, be, let's be real about it, okay? There are people that are on different sides of the spectrum on this passage. There are some, and some groups of scholars and some groups of, of people who follow Jesus, who would say that the 144,000, this is a literal, actual number, and that means that 144,000 people are saved, period. They're the only ones that get to reign with God. They're the only ones who get to actually live in heaven with God at the end of all things. 144,000, no more, no less, done. Okay? Now, as we look at the book of Revelation, one of the things that we see is that numbers are often not totally literal right? We have symbolic meanings of numbers. So take a look at this number 144,000 for just a second. We have the number 12, which is then multiplied by 12. So we have this number 12, which is often used to talk about like the 12 tribes of Israel, for example. It's a number of like completion, completeness. There's a reason that Jesus chose 12 apostles, okay? So we have this number 12, and then we multiply that by itself. It's like perfection on top of perfection. Cool, right? And then we multiply that by 1,000 just because. <laughs> the number's a little bit, it's a little bit too neat, a little bit too tidy, I think, in this sense, to be totally literal. There are others who would take a look at this passage, and they would say, okay, well, we have 144,000, and this is, a, this is a representation of what this actually is talking about is an actual, literal, ethnic remnant of the people of Israel who are descended from Jacob, Israel, okay? And there's this kind of like ethnic component to it that they'll talk about. It's a literal section of the 12 tribes, what I find interesting about that interpretation and why I probably wouldn't go there myself is because what we see in other places in the New Testament is that when Jesus completes his work on the cross, the Gentiles and the Jews are grafted together into the family of God. That separation is no longer meaningful in the sense of if you're in Jesus. So it doesn't make a ton of sense to me that we would have this division at the end of all things. 
So what kind of is going on here? What is this? We're going you know, to kind of look at this. If you notice, John hears the number, 144,000. Okay, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then he goes through his whole list, and, and I read it a bunch. Okay, I read that word 12,000 enough times. I think we got it. In that sense, this is like he's hearing, this is the perfect number. No one's extra. No one's missing. This number is like perfection on top of perfection times 1,000. Right? And then he turns and he looks. He looks at what he heard. So if you kind of read through the passage, that's what happens, right? He hears the number, but then he sees this. He sees, after this, I looked. Maybe this thing will work. There it is. After this, I looked. And there before me, was a great multitude that no one could count. The 144,000, that's like just, it's a way of saying it's the perfect number. It's the exact right number. And then he turns and he looks and there is an enormous multitude that no one can count. And here's another reason why it's probably not divided between Jew and Gentile. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in your hands. So you notice John hears the thing and then he sees the reality from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's incredible. Jesus has unified these people in himself. These people who bear the seal of God on their foreheads can't be counted by any person. They can't be numbered. There's too many. God knows the number. He's got it. He's got it figured out, okay? We couldn't count. And think about that for a second. Do you remember God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis? I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. He's like, Abraham, go out and start counting the stars. Can you number them all? And he's like, uh-huh. no. <laughs> and God tells Abraham, that's how many descendants you are going to have. That's how many people, nations, every nation on earth is going to be blessed through your family. This promise to Abraham, John sees it fulfilled in this moment. Every nation, tribe, people, language, together, worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who does salvation belong to? God and the Lamb. Now, as I'm kind of reading along through this and, you know, figuring this all out as much as I can, a couple of questions arose in my mind. One of them is, if salvation didn't belong to God, who would it belong to? The fact that salvation belongs to God should bring us enormous hope, but in our sort of current cultural moment, there are a couple of messages that I think can tend to drown out that idea that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. 
And the first one is this. Rather than salvation belongs to God, there's often a message that can drown it out, which is salvation belongs to me. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my ship. I can figure this out on my own. I can make my own meaning with enough education, with enough income, with enough security, with enough therapy, with enough healthy relationships, with enough, with enough, with enough. I can save myself. I can soothe that part that's deep within my soul that says that there's something deeply wrong with the world around me and with myself. With enough, fill in the blank. And I can make my own meaning. I can sustain my own life and my own purpose. I can give myself my own sense of destiny. This is huge in our, in our kind of American individualistic culture. We tend to be so individualistic that we can say, oh, I'm just going to do it on my own. There's another message that I think is growing, okay? And it's growing particularly among my own generation, the millennials and younger, Gen Z, which is this, salvation isn't really possible. It's not even really a thing. And when you think about it, we have increasing violence that we're hearing about in the news. You have the war that's going on in the Middle East. You have the war that's going on in Ukraine. You have all of the violent activity and stuff that's been going on for the last many years in our own country. We have continuing news of different crazy like weather events and the climate crisis and the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. We have escalating violence among our people. We have growing economic issues where we have like people experiencing this growing divide between rich and poor and are not sure how they're going to get by. We have growing cynicism. We have political divisions that seem completely insurmountable. And it just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on and it just seems like, well, we're all doomed anyway, so we might as well do what we want. Salvation's not a thing. The message of Revelation is very different from either of those two things. Salvation is not only possible, it's inevitable for people who love Jesus. <laughs> It's not only possible, it's inevitable. And it does not depend on human effort, human reason, human progress, human ideas, my own effort, my own enough, whatever that is. Salvation's a fact. A fact that was invented by God and is sustained by him for all eternity. That's amazing to me. As somebody who is growing up among the growing cynicism of our, you know, our, our culture, that is a fresh message. 
And what's crazy, it's not, just, it's not fresh, really. <laughs> it's thousands of years old. But it soothes my soul and it feeds something in my soul that wouldn't otherwise be fed. So then in response to this, the angels and the elders, they offer their own hymn to God. They say this. There it is. The angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Remember that sevenfold, perfect, filled up praise. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The angels and the elders and the four living creatures, they offer worship in light of the fact of salvation. Here's our first kind of big point today. Good theology should lead to doxology. Doxology is a fancy word for worship. Good theology should lead to doxology. So here's the question, right? We live in a moment where we can be so educated about God. So well-educated. I can go to school for years and years. I can go get a doctorate in theology right now, right? Like, I could write a thesis and do the thing and, you know, I can go to the library and there are thousands of books about God, about theology, about Jesus. I can be, I can be informed, so well-informed about God. But if none of that actually leads me to worship him for who he is, then it's not very useful at all, is it? It just kind of sits there and doesn't do anything. Notice how the angels and the elders like have right theology, but it leads them into worship. They know the truth about God. Their theology is good. But they're not just staying there and saying, yes, I'm right, wonderful, right? They're worshiping God as a result. The truths that these angels know about God lead them over and over again to true worship. And I think we should take that example for ourselves. We can be overeducated and underdiscipled. Am I right? And sometimes we can be educated past our obedience. If our education outstrips our obedience and our worship, then we need to kind of reevaluate what the purpose of our education is. So moving on, John says this. Then one of the elders asked me, these people in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? Now, I don't think this elder was actually asking for this information. <laughs> he probably, it's a, probably a rhetorical question. He's trying to get John to think about it. And John's answer is great. He's like, sir, you know. <laughs> you ever had somebody ask you a rhetorical question and you're like, you know the answer to the question. <laughs> Why are you asking me? And then he said, these are those who, come out of the, who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This is another kind of an interesting interaction, right? It hints at a couple of things. 
One, it looks like the people who John sees who are faithful to Jesus endure the tribulation. They go through it. So I know that, you know, we, people come from sort of different, differences of opinion about kind of the timeline of events at the end of all things, right? And there are some that will be like, well, the rapture is going to happen and we're going to be taken out and the tribulation is going to happen and then, and then we'll come back and, you know, it'll, it'll all work out and we won't have to go through it. There are others who would say, well, we're going we're gonna to experience it. We're going to go through it. But we're going to endure it. And there's going to be something that comes out on the other side that's good. This is a passage that, to me, points to the second option. Okay? And you may have a difference of opinion, but that's where I'm at. Okay? These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They go through some kind of terrible, terrible, terrible series of events. You ever read that series, a series of unfortunate events? They go through a bunch of stuff. But here's the thing. They come through it. They do come through it. The world could fold in on itself. Evil could run rampant. The, you know, life could completely fall apart. The mountains could shatter, whatever. Every piece of stability and safety that exists could be stripped away in an instant, and the faithful come through it. The faithful come through it. So that's not exactly like the most comforting answer to this issue of evil in the world, right? Well, you just kind of endure it, and then it'll be better at one day. <laughs> like... But that's what we're being offered here. We go through it with Jesus in the hope that he will make all things new. Look at the last part of our passage. Here's what it says. Therefore, they, that is these people who are faithful, okay, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. There's a care and a comfort there. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Note, it says again, which means they have hungered. They have thirsted. But it's not going to happen anymore in the presence of God for all eternity. This is also a reference back to the book of Isaiah, by the way. So just, you know, fun fact, right? The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Think about Psalm 23 for a second. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't lack anything. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let that sit for just a second. There will come a day when Jesus' presence and reign will be all in all. For people who are in Christ, they'll be protected by his very presence forever 
No more hunger, no more thirst, no more sun beating down on your head and scorching you. Jesus' followers will be led by him, protected by him, provided for by him, and we will worship him. And he will lead us to springs of fresh, life-giving water and wipe away every tear. At the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I have to reference the Lord of the Rings, guys. At the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the return of the king, there's this beautiful moment between Samwise Gamgee, you guys know who Sam is, okay, and Gandalf. There's this climactic final battle for the fate of Middle-earth, and Frodo doesn't really throw the ring into Mount Doom. Spoiler alert, Gollum kind of takes care of that. Um, But there's this moment where Sam sees Gandalf, and he's like, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. In fact, I thought I was dead myself, but you're, you're alive, Gandalf. Oh, my goodness. And he asks him this question to Gandalf. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Now, Gandalf's response to this in the book is he just laughs. And it's this like, like amazing moment of like, of course, right? And he just laughs. He doesn't really give him an answer. The Christian answer to this question, the answer that Jesus provides to this question is a resounding, no holds barred, yes. There will come a day when everything sad will come untrue. There will come a day when it will be okay. This doesn't make the evil that we experience in our lives suck any less, right? (laughs) It still is terrible in the moment. The evil and the grief and the loss, the violence, stress, the anxiety, it doesn't make it suck any less in the moment. But it does instill in followers of Jesus hope. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope that God knows, that he sees, that he understands, and that one day he will actually make all things new. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes. Another way you could put this is, if Jesus is on the throne, it's going to be okay. If Jesus is on the throne, it's going to be okay. It might not feel like it in the moment, but that's the truth. Everything sad will come untrue. Jesus is going to wipe away every 